So I'd like you to imagine with me a dear old lady that, is a fa- that has faithfully attended church for a very long time. She's served in all sorts of children's ministries, has always been available to help every time there's been a need. She's been a part of the missions committee of the church. And in every sense of the word, she's a super sweet lady, always available, always willing to help and serve and give. She's married to a man who has never attended church. He's grumpy. Some of you can picture that by the, your laughter. He's grumpy and he hangs around with a rough crowd. He often mocks his wife when she attends church and says that he would never go to a place full of religious hypocrites. Now, if you were to ask this lady, on what basis do you hope to get into heaven? The question would shock her. And she would even respond, why would you even ask such a question? But if she could find the words to reply, she she would probably say, well, all good people go to heaven. I've always tried to do my best to be nice to others, and I've served the church in various ways. And then she goes on and she says, I've also been able to ignore the comments that my husband makes that are mean towards me and my church. God knows that I've done the best that I could And I feel that I would go to heaven because I'm a good person. Recently, this woman's husband hasn't been feeling well. And as most guys, he took forever to go to the doctors. And when he sat down with the doctor, as he was explaining what was going on, they figured out that he had advanced cancer. The doctor shared he does not have much time to live. And so as his health was declining, they called in hospice, and one of the evenings, a hospice nurse came in and shared the gospel with this man. She tells him that God offers forgiveness for all the sins that he has ever committed, and that there is a free gift if he would believe by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for him on the cross. As she left, she left the gospel of John with him. And because of his time being short, he opened up the Gospel of John and he devoured it. And as he read, God opened his eyes to see his sin and his need for a Savior. He sees that Jesus is God's Son, the Savior of all who trust in Him. And he puts his hope in Christ and he passes away and he goes to heaven to be with the Lord. Now his wife would never say it, but she is secretly relieved that he is gone. He was always so difficult to live with. She continues with all of her religious activities for the rest of her life. And a few years later, she dies. But because she was trusting in her own righteousness, this nice old lady goes to hell. She never trusted in Christ as the necessary, perfect righteousness that God gives to all who believe. Now, that's a fictional story to probably most degree, right? 
I'm sure it's possible that it's happened at some point. But it conveys something that we've been talking about last week and into this week again. How does a person get eternal life and go to heaven? Last week we talked about that question. Where are we putting our trust? Where's our confidence? Is our trust or confidence in what God has supplied? Or do we stand in the presence of God confident, thinking that we have done something good to garner such blessing from Him? Now this is a question that we really need to consider. There are no second chances. How you answer this question will determine where you spend forever. The Bible plainly says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that we die once and then face judgment. There's no do-overs. We don't get to stand in front of God and see the evidence on perfect display in front of us as we see Christ who has risen from the dead and say, oh, I must have been mistaken. We don't get that opportunity. Our passage this morning continues to build upon religion's dangerous deception. Religion is a dangerous thing. It's deadly. Now, I want to take a a step back, and I've said this before. We need to remember, all of us, you can deny it, you can say, no, that's not true, but all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are religious. We are. The, The term itself, in and of itself, religion is just the act of our uh, belief, our, our act of worship, our act of service, our act of following uh, what we believe is true. And so even this morning, we're acting as religious people. We gathered here. We sing songs. We pray. We hear the word of God opened. When you leave here and go about your day, if, if God is a part of your life, and I pray that he is, there is an act of service in what you do. There is a function to your belief system. And so, in, in some sense, we're all religious. The danger is that we look at what we do as the replacement of the one who we should follow and love and adore. And when I was thinking about some of the things that, that Paul was bringing up in this text and, 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 and where we are in the, the process of looking at the, the book of Romans, you know, in chapter 9, Paul introduced to us what has happened to the nation of Israel, these people that God loves and has chosen and he's given all these blessings and promises to. Why don't they seem to be believing in the Messiah that was promised to come? Why were they guilty and shouting with the crowds during his last day, crucify him? Why didn't they adore him? Why didn't they rescue him? Why didn't they decide to follow him? 
And Paul went through the process in chapter 9 of explaining that just because you belong to Israel doesn't mean that you're truly a child of all the promises that he's going to give. It's not by bloodline, it's by faith. And and Paul masterfully brought us through this chapter in chapter 9 of explaining what God is doing as he is sovereignly, providentially working in building his people. And last week, as chapter 9 closed, we we talked about this thought that the evidence was clear. And yet the nation of Israel stumbled over the clear presentation of the promise that God gave, that Jesus is the Messiah. And as Paul moves us forward, he he, he's now bringing to light to the, the church in Rome and to us today what God is doing on behalf of these people, Israel. Because he's still working. And the, the alarms that he sounds off for them are the same alarms that should be sounded off in our own hearts that we need to be very careful that we understand that what we do does not secure us. That it's always been what Christ has done for us that secures us in God's eyes. Listen. As a Christian, God wants you to do good. Your Christian life should be full of good works. Later on after the service, you're going to sit in a salt session if you stick around and and you're going to walk through another discipline of the Christian life. And you can hear about all these disciplines that we should pray and read the scriptures and worship and all these things and say, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do all these things. But if there is no relationship, if there is no vertical relationship with God, it is all for naught. It's vain and empty. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that if you abide in Him, you will produce fruit. God will work in your heart. And out of the overflow of your relationship with Jesus, you will see the grace of God and He will use you as you live for Him. But there is a deadly deception in front of us this morning. Now, this chapter continues to build upon the mystery of God and salvation. Listen, if Romans stopped at chapter 9, we would walk away and say, in salvation, God does everything. We don't have to do anything. God sovereignly calls and elects those who are His, end of story, and that's it. And some falsely, tragically, have believed that. They've stopped in Romans 9 and said, this is what God does. We don't have to do anything else. We don't need to evangelize. We don't need to witness. We don't need to share the hope of Christ. We don't need to tell anyone anything because God has already sorted it all out. He's already figured it out. And that is a dangerous place to believe. Romans 10 puts that deception to shame. 
Yes, God completely is sovereign in salvation. Completely is. From the the time before time began, and it blows my mind, it's completely sovereign. That he works sovereignly in calling people to salvation by his grace. And it's not by human merit. Remember in Romans 9, the example of Jacob and Esau. Before the children were even born, Paul says, before they did anything, God chose. And so, yes, that is true. And yes, as Romans 10 clearly declares, the gospel is received through the faithful proclamation of the good news by God's people. This is for us. Like, even if we get this, even if we know this, even if we, we, we rest in the fact that our hope is in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation, this passage is for us because it compels us that we partner in this grand declaration that good news has come to the world. We see the mystery of salvation from both sides in Romans 9 and 10. In chapter 9, it's, it's the mystery from God's perspective of what He is doing. And in Romans 10, it's the mystery from our perspective of what happens when we hear the good news. We can't miss this. That as we walk through this text over the next several weeks, you need to understand clearly that God depends on you for the salvation of the lost. He depends on you. How do we know that? We'll look further down in Romans 10. Let me read verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? How are people going to hear if we don't go? And, and I'd like to just clear up that word preacher. It doesn't mean the guy that you pay to do the job. It means us. It's the same call that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 28 to go out into all the world and make disciples. The Great Commission is repeated five times in different ways in the four Gospels and also in the book of Acts. It is supremely important that we understand that God's divine, sovereign salvation depends on the activity of his people to go and preach the good news to all people. We don't know who God has chosen from His side of it. It's not our job to figure that out. We go and preach. And every person that responds, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God has divinely worked before the foundations of the world. And we see these mysteries unfolding right here in the text of Scripture. And so I hope you see that as we've left over the last few weeks this, this drumbeat of what God is doing in salvation, that you're not tempted to think, well, 
I don't have to do anything. And God's got it all figured out. And yes, He does. But part of that equation is you. That He is moving you where you are. And so as we look at this text, I want to see how God can work in your heart, much like He worked in Paul's heart, to compel him to preach such good news. And the first thing, it it begins with a desire of the heart. It begins with what's going on here for those around us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The them and their is the nation of Israel from Romans 9. Paul is saying to this church, after he just explained masterfully in Romans 9, that if you remember, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. That as Paul thought of his countrymen, his brethren, the people he grew up with, the people that he, he said, I belong to you because we are a part of this great nation that God has called out. His heart is broken for them because they had every opportunity to receive the Messiah and they rejected the Messiah. And Paul doesn't get angry and take his ball and go home and say, okay, I'm, forget about them. I'm not going to worry about them. I'm mad at them. Do you ever get mad at someone when they don't believe like you believe? Like, you know, you get upset and you think, why don't you just get it? And then you say, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You don't think like me. You don't act like me. Paul doesn't act that way. Sure, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but as we talked about in Romans 9, he always went to the Jews first. His countrymen. And he's sharing his heart for these people. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. His desire is the result of the frustration that he experiences as a result of the lostness of his countrymen. They have put their total trust in their works of religion. And they thought that was the means to righteousness. And they tripped over the stumbling stone of Christ. As Romans 9.33 explains. This is his heart's desire. Now the heart in the New Testament was thought of as the deepest level of being. This is the essence of who Paul is. Just imagine as he went step by step through the Roman Empire with the good news of Jesus. Every step was full of his desire to see the Jewish people come to faith in the Messiah. He has a compassionate concern for these people. He is emotionally involved because of the stumbling of his brothers. And so what does he do? He prays earnestly for them. 
He prays earnestly to God for their salvation. Paul's heart is full of concern because they are lost in their sin. Here's what we understand in prayer, and I I challenge you to test me otherwise on this. Prayer always reveals what is going on in our hearts. Prayer is a wonderful indicator of what is important to you. If you could record, and I, I don't know if I'm going to say do this, but if you were to record your prayers and play them back and listen, what you hear your, yourself say is what you know to be true and important in what you want God to do. So here's the question that we all need to wrestle with this morning. If the world is completely, completely lost in sin, and they are, and the gospel is the only remedy for the sinner's heart, and it is, then who are you praying for that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I think it's safe to say that each one of us who are truly in the faith are in the faith because somebody prayed for us. And it might have been someone that you never met. And it could be a general prayer. Like, we can't leave that out of the realm of what God does. That as people pray for a work of a ministry or pray for someone that is sharing the gospel in a way that it'll be heard. But for many of us, it's been the prayers of loved ones, of the saints that have gone on before us, the people that poured into your hearts and lives when you were young, And maybe you didn't come to faith when you were young, but oh, along the way, Jesus met you and you found grace. This doesn't mean that we bring people into the kingdom by prayer alone. But it does mean this, that if you're not praying for people, truly praying for people, Come and find Jesus. Like it, it, if you don't have a list of people that you're praying for, it's very well likely you're not witnessing to them. And so I want to challenge you. And th- this isn't a hard thing. And I'm not encouraging you to be super judgmental and critical and say, well, I don't know, you know. I'm going to look at all these things and figure it out. I think we know that there are people that we're around, whether it's a neighbor, a loved one, a coworker, or something, that we're praying for. We're praying for these people that God would divinely use us in the ministry of the gospel to reach them with the hope of Jesus. And you might say to me, well, I, I can't share the gospel in the workplace. I'll get fired. You don't have to get up at your desk with your Bible open and start reading Bible verses to share the gospel with someone. You can love them and through relationship build into their lives. And as you reflect the grace of God in your life and talk about how the Savior has affected you, that can be a witness to them. But it could mean that as you build relationships with people and and just through sharing life with people, oh, by the way, along the way, 
you're able to share the hope of the gospel. That means you also know what the gospel is, to be able to share it. That it is the good news that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God and lived a perfect life and died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the world. And that he was buried and that three days later he rose from the dead and he is alive, defeating sin and death. The concern that Paul had was a result of the deception that the Jews were believing as a whole. That what they did was enough. And so he says in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Do you see that? They're pursuing God. They are. They have a zeal for God. Sometimes religious people have more zeal for God than people that think they know Jesus. Like churchgoers that love Jesus. Like we see people all the time passionate and excited about things and things for God. But without the Lord, it's all vain. They missed the mark in their relationship with the Lord. They were zealous. The word zealous carries with it the idea of passionate desire to worship God and to uphold the traditional ways. If you look at early New Testament history, like what was going on in Israel around the time of Jesus, you know that there are all sorts of people that were called zealots. In fact, we, we meet some of the zealots in the Gospels. And zealots were people that were super on fire for what they believed in to be true. They were super religious people. Did you ever meet a religious zealot before? Like you know those people, right? You walk away and think, what's going on with you? I'm going to go over here. But everything that they are, everything that they do, everything that they believe in, they are super committed. And it's like the only thing they say is what they believe. They they don't worry about secondary things. The Jews that were guilty of missing the mark were super zealous in their relationship with God, but they carried out their zealous behavior in the wrong way. They became, or this became a huge deal for Israel in Paul's day. There was a portion of Israel's history that we read about in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel was not zealous. They believed in all of the false gods. They worshipped other idols. They set up all sorts of altars to other, other pagan deities all throughout the Old Testament. And what happened to them? God judged them. And in captivity, they were taken away. And then when Malachi wrote the last book of prophecy in the Old Testament, and we see the closing of the Old Testament that culminates of what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah as the nation of Israel is allowed to return to restore Israel to what it once was. We see that out of that movement, the Jewish people turned away from the idols and they became very zealous in their zeal for God. And through the 400 years of between Malachi and the time of Jesus... 
the, the history of Israel talks about this. If you read other books of literature, there, there's uh, historical books called First and Second Maccabees. It's included in some Bibles, but it's not inspired scripture. It's the story of these people, the, the Jewish people, that had stayed and held fast in a time of great turmoil. That there was great persecution coming around them, and they remained steadfast in what they believed to be true. And during the time of Jesus, when he was ministering as the Son of God, the hope of the nation, these super religious people heard everything that he had to say and say, nope, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Because doing things feels really good. And it's something we can hold on to and say, right, this is, I know I believe. I know I have approval. I know I have favor because I've done all of these things. The Jewish people in the time of Paul were zealous, beyond zealous. Their religious teachers, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, we're all about the function of relationship rather than the relationship. The danger, though, was that their zeal, even in God, was not in accordance with knowledge. They were so committed to their plans that they totally missed how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. And as a result, they stood condemned in their sin. No matter how many times they offered sacrifices, went to synagogue, acted a certain way, none of it was going to gain approval with God. And it happens today. Much like the dear old lady in the beginning of the sermon, we can deceive ourselves by doing a whole lot for God but never truly trusting in the Savior that God has given us. Zeal without knowledge is fatal. Everyone who is zealous is, is sincere in their zeal. Everyone who is zealous is sincere. And you know you can be sincerely wrong. I mean, think about it. If, let's say you're a neighbor who sincerely loves your, the, the person that that lives next to you and, and you care about them and, and you want to show your care for them. And, and so in the sincerity of your love for them, you bring them a large, beautiful bouquet of flowers. But you don't realize that your neighbor has a dangerous allergy to them. Zeal for your neighbor without knowledge can be fatal. You know, we need, we need to understand that you can be super on fire for things that totally miss the mark. In verse 3, Paul says, For not knowing, speaking of Israel's zeal, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They started from a wrong starting point. For they didn't know the righteousness of God. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness. Now, they should have known about God's righteousness because God's righteousness wasn't something that just appeared in the New Testament. God's righteousness was all throughout the scriptures that they had, that the righteousness that he calls them to is a righteousness that is given by faith. And by believing God and the promises that he gave, when Jesus showed up, They should have been like the disciples that were longing to see the Savior that was promised. But what did they do? They exchanged that for what they were doing in their religion. They sought to establish their own righteousness. We do that. Let's just be honest. We we try to establish our own righteousness. By comparing and contrasting, by saying, look, I I did all these things, or, oh no, they're doing those things. And we try to make ourselves either better off or worse off compared to our own standard. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Listen, doing things your own way, ignoring what God has provided, causes you to not be subject to the righteousness of God. That is the dangerous deception of religion. Thinking you are on the right path. Thinking that you're heading in the right direction. Thinking that at the last breath of your life, you will stand in the presence of God and He will say, Welcome home, come on in, i got a place for you. Because you've based it all on what you have done. And all along the way, you miss the signs of God showing you that it's not by what you do, but it's by who you believe in and have trusted in. Listen, if you've been here more than one or two weeks, and that's the majority of you, you know, at least you have heard, that salvation is a gift. But I can guarantee you just with the law of averages, that 100% of this room isn't committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be super judgy and say, you're the person or you're the person. You walk out of here saying, oh my gosh, the pastor said I'm not a believer. I'm saying this. All along the way in your life up until this point, God has been shouting to you if you've sat under the ministry of the word here that he wants you to know him, that he loves you completely, that he has given everything for you to come to him and know him, and that everything is the person of his son, Jesus, and that Jesus came to this earth and took your place so that you don't have to try hard enough, that you don't have to keep working, that you don't have to try to balance the scales of justice, that everything has been provided for you, and God says to you, will you Please believe. But I can guarantee in the journey of life, we're not all there yet. And so I beg you, I implore you, I urge you, much like Paul prayed with his earnest desire for the nation of Israel to come to salvation, I I pray that you see the grace of God, that it's not by what you do, And Paul says in verse 4, For Christ is the end 
of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I love that verse. You might want to highlight that verse. Because this verse shouts to us, religion doesn't work. Christ is the end of doing things. Christ is the true righteousness that God requires. That word end that Paul uses in the Greek refers to either termination or to purpose. And I think Paul means both sides of it here. It's in both senses that Jesus is the end of the law. He didn't come to abolish it. Jesus didn't come with a magic eraser and say, and it's gone. No, Jesus looked at the law, all the demands of the law, and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He didn't misstep one way. And when he died on the cross as the sacrifice for all the people that break law, which is us too, the Father was able to look at that sacrifice and say it is good. It is sufficient. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Listen, there are people today that believe in Christ and they hold on to the Old Testament law. And you might talk to them and say, to believe in Jesus, you have to do all these things. And if you ever come across someone like that, gently, politely, read Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We don't gain righteousness by keeping rules. How do we gain righteousness? By faith. Righteousness is given as a gift. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. We cannot please God on our own by our own performance. We can only receive right standing through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we close, again, I implore you, on what basis are you hoping to find God's approval? If you're serving in ministry, we are so thankful that you're serving in ministry. But if you're basing your approval on God's sight based on what you're doing in ministry, that's the wrong reason. We're always going to have needs. And we can come up here and say, listen, we need this and we need that. And we can, you know, twist your arm and make you feel really bad about it and bring up kids with frowny faces and say, oh, look at the kids. But if you respond to those needs so that you can feel more confident in standing in God's presence, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But if it's out of the overflow of your heart, of your gratitude for God, for his love for you, then you are able to do good the way the scriptures call us to. People who love Jesus and follow him will produce good works. But the good works are not the basis of that relationship. So I want to pray for you. And pray for me. It's a constant reminder. Like, why do I do what do I, why, why do I do what I do? Is it because it's a part of my job description? 
Or is it because I love the Lord and want to see Him blessed? And I pray that for you, the answer is always because you love Jesus. Let's pray.